women are raising our voices. Solving the problems of the world. We gotta be at the table. Your voice does matter. She wants Hello and welcome to She Roars, a podcast about change and the women who make it happen, on and off the Princeton campus. My name is Margaret Koval. I'm a graduate alumna from 1983, and my guest today is Courtney Banghart. For anybody who doesn't follow campus sports, Courtney's been coaching the women's basketball team for Princeton since 2007, and she's the winningest coach in the program's history. She's led the Princeton Tigers to six Ivy League championships. I think the, the most recent was last year. Yes. Yes. And she made national news in 2015 with a perfect 30-0 season, the all-time best Ivy League basketball record for men or women. Fortune magazine named her one of the 50 greatest leaders in the world that year, along with China's president, India's prime minister, Bill and Melinda Gates, and the Pope. (laughs) Good company right there. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Courtney, thank you very, very much for being with us. I'm so glad to be here. You tell a couple of funny stories about that fortune uh, episode, and yes. one of them is is uh, is chatting with Katie Couric before before giving the keynote uh, address at the dinner. I wonder if you wouldn't mind telling us one more time. Oh, absolutely. So here I get this um, this phone call from Patty Sellers at Fortune Magazine telling me I had been selected as one of the world's uh, greatest fifty leaders, and I of course thought it was thought it was a joke. <laughs> um, and I um, ends up the, the conversation ended up so much so that she asked if I'd like to come back and, and speak at the dinner. Um, and so there I go. And so I walk into this, um, this, this beautiful venue in New York City mm. and ready to take in the event. And um, I'm seated right next to Katie Couric, yeah. who, of course, who doesn't know Katie Couric? And um, when I'm sitting with her, she sort of asks me, you know, who are you? And I said, you know, I had introduced myself. And I, she asked what I did. And I said, well, you know, I work at Princeton. And I thought, oh, gosh, here it comes. And she says, you know, Princeton, what a beautiful place. And I said, yeah, it's really an honor to be there. And she said, what do you do there? And I was like, oh, no. I said, well, I I coach women's basketball. And uh, she said, all day? (laughs) As if I was like, yeah, all day, all year, (laughs) you know, 365 days a year, a labor of love. But it made me laugh when I heard it because, uh, first of all, I felt for you because it seemed like such an unnerving thing to have somebody say to you right before you go up to give a keynote address. Exactly, yeah. But but also because, you know, it's sort of uh, axiomatic to me that, you know, big big wins, big big outputs require big inputs. So I assume it's a full-time job. But that said, I don't think Katie Couric is alone. I'm not sure yeah. a lot of us know exactly what goes into coaching yeah. other than what we see on the court. Of course, yeah. So what is the shape of that um, iceberg below the waterline? What, what do you do when yeah. we're not looking? what does it look like? You know, I'm glad you asked because it's truly why I never thought I'd be a college basketball coach. Yeah. I just didn't think it was a vocation. I yeah. thought it was a passion. Right? Interesting, yeah. And I end up, um, you know, I've got two Ivy League degrees, one in neuroscience <laughs> and one in writing, right? So I stayed as far away professionally as I could have. And mm. um, I get a call from the athletic director at Princeton asking, if I wanted to interview for the women's basketball job mm-hmm. back in 2007. And I literally at that point didn't, didn't know, mm-hmm. right? I sort of thought, what, what is that? You know, is that... No kidding, because you'd been a I had been coach. at Dartmouth for four years, mm-hmm. but I was doing that and, and they were actually paying for my master's. So, and, and I had also apl- applied to the Amazing Race. I mean, there were other things I yeah. was thinking through, right? Um, and I just, I didn't, even to that moment, I just didn't know that coaching would be a uh, full-time vocation. Um, and, you know, I, my, under the good advice of my parents, they said, you should at least take a look. Uh-huh. And so I went and took took a look, and I went after, as you can imagine, having spent so much time on this campus yourself, um, it didn't take me very long from coming down for a job I didn't really know if I wanted to yeah. a job I needed to have. Yeah. Um, and uh, so 
truth be told, I didn't know exactly what it was when I took the job. I knew that it was, I knew the on-court stuff. I knew it was going to be um, developing a team from infancy, infancy to maturity. Mm-hmm. Um, the X's and O's, the mm-hmm. part of the game, the recruiting, which is a huge part of what we do, mm-hmm. um, which is what you'd imagine. We yeah. watch you know, high school age kids play basketball and we determine which ones would be a great fit um, for our program. And then you do the transcript and, and fact finding. But that's a huge part of the job. But those are the only things I knew. Mm. I didn't know a lot of the intricacies of it. Mm. Um, and it's actually made me fall in love with the vocation um, because of the interconnectedness. At a place like Princeton, it's a very interconnected in- institution, you know. And so what I'm what I'm also doing, we, we just came back from the Littlebrook School just this afternoon where we're pen pal pen pals with a fourth with a second grade class mm-hmm. so everyone on my team has someone in the class as their pen pal and every uh-huh. month they exchange letters so there's so many other parts of of the holistic education that, that being a basketball coach requires yeah and presumably you're, you're in charge of the assistant coaches as well and yes and there's a, of a staff yeah there's a staff so you're basically the ceo of a small very small company yeah um you're st- all the staff hiring all the staff maintenance all the staff management um that would fall under under me um of course the what happens on the floor the terms of the recruiting in terms of the culture, kind of how in which um, these young women carry themselves, um, and you know the academic side. I mean, there's just you're basically there. I am 100% the adult they're closest to in their four years here at Princeton and often beyond. Yeah, that's that's interesting. And and you've already referenced that you were really young when you took this job. You Very. were 29. And, yes. and just to pick up some of the things that we mentioned in this, mm-hmm. you'd done an undergraduate degree at Dartmouth mm-hmm. in, in neuroscience, mm-hmm. gone off to teach mm-hmm. for a couple of years, mm-hmm. and then came back as an assistant coach for Dartmouth. Mm-hmm. And as you said, you did your master's. But you said it was in writing, but you also studied leadership development, right? Yes, yeah. So I did a thesis. So I had to, part of what I had to do for the writing master's was to get to write a thesis. Mm-hmm. And I was full-time co- college basketball coaching, which, um, as Katie Couric now knows, is a full-time job, right? <laughs> and the rest so, of us. So, <laughs> exactly. So here I was um, having to write this long thesis. And so instead of studying, you know, one of the world wars or anything that had this plethora of information, mm-hmm. I chose instead to um, look at coaching as a vocation. Mm-hmm. So I almost used that year of residence to say, you know, let me learn more about. And so I, I interviewed some of the, the highest names you'd ever, you know, in our game, um, Gino Ariyama mm-hmm. and Andrew. Anson Dorrance, who's the head soccer coach at UNC, uh, Margot Yonker, who was the Olympic softball coach, Kay Yao, the former coach at NC State, who has since passed, um, some of the biggest names in collegiate athletics. And I spent two hours face-to-face mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. them, and I asked them everything from your journey, the times you've taken the harder right over mm-hmm. the easier wrong, how and which you've managed your, and, and um, found your staff. You know, some things that if... Some things, honestly, that I would ask you if you all of a sudden were running a, a small business, i.e. a podcast, like you would probably, there are people that you would then want to talk to and yeah. find out more what it's about. So I use that, that thesis to really determine, can I do it? Is this something that I want to do? Interesting. And so what did you learn there that you still use today? Everything. I mean, one of the things I learned the most was that when you're talking to Gino Ariyama, he coaches very differently than someone like Gail Gaston Corris, who was the head coach at Duke. Mm-hmm. But they were in their element. Mm-hmm. So they led to the personalities of who they were. And so I, it mattered so little what I knew. It mattered so much that I knew myself. Um, and I think me learning that is, is why I've been successful. I think I, I stay in my lane and who I am, and I leave with, with, within the vein of who I am. So that's interesting because, again, my, my um, quick summary or quick uh, research into your biography, mm-hmm. uh, at 29, you, you'd been a, a, a superstar athlete in your own right. Mm-hmm. Frankly, back in high school, you were a superstar in, in I believe, three sports, yeah. uh, soccer, tennis, and, and, and um, basketball, obviously. And then you yeah. played basketball in college. And, 
uh, I think you're New England Hall of Famer, if I'm not yes, mistaken. you are. Right? Yeah, okay. wow. Well, you have a good research team. <laughs> so what I think that you clearly knew was how to win. Uh, yeah. Did you have any trouble learning how to lose? Well, my first year, people thankfully forget we were 7-23. and 23. Mm-hmm. You know, so we lost more games in my in my freshman my first year coaching at Princeton than I did in all four years playing at Dartmouth. That's right. really interesting. How did yeah. that feel? That you know, to be honest, I didn't feel much different than we did the thirty and O mm-hmm. season. I think partly why I know I'm in my area of, of or zone of genius, as they say, is that it's more about the why than mm-hmm. than the what. Um, and I got that seven and twenty three team was probably was probably a five and. 25 team probably mm-hmm. right um but we just we won we t- eked out some some victories because of our culture and who we were um and so i've just i've got better players now i've got mm-hmm. a i've got a more experience so i'm a better coach for them um so I, you never really learn how to lose in this business but you learn what how much goes into winning mm-hmm. um and i'm more experienced now to put that extra in interesting and so uh the co- the team i'm sorry was um was described by fortune i'm gonna that's gonna be the light mo- motif through this interview Great. Yeah, of course <laughs> as it should be <laughs> and it was just described as a mediocre team yeah which I which I you know looking at the records mm-hmm. um your predecessors had probably lost more games than they'd won mm-hmm. um probably way more games yeah. than they'd won in a lot of yeah. instances um did you s- look at this and say Whew, I need a big plan for turning this mm-hmm. team around to turn mediocrity into um greatness which is eventually what you did I guess I'm asking did you plot a course from the mm-hmm. beginning or did you follow your nose and mm. follow your instincts and mm-hmm. your self-knowledge as you describe it yeah to get where we are today I think in any people industry you're sort of um, you're doing it day by day with, with the who in mm-hmm. the room right and so it would have been much easier for me to devise a plan but forgetting who the who was and not knowing who the who was it wouldn't mm-hmm. have been possible um, and so you know what you what you what you do in terms of execution is win the day it's sounds mm-hmm. so coach but mm-hmm. it's really all you can do um <laughs> is win the day so I really didn't have a plan I didn't to be honest I have to admit part of why I took the job a lot of my peers were saying that's like career suicide yeah right because if you're not prepared and you don't do well once you've been fired from the industry it's quite hard to get back in um and I said that'll be fine because then I'm only 29 yeah. so if I get fired within four years I'm 33 and I'm young enough to start something different yeah and so I think so many people operate in the other way they say the risk of failure is so great that it's not worth it because the comfort's okay. Yeah. Um, and I just have never seen, uh, fortunately, I've just not been afraid of the risk of failure. And so I figured if I'm not good enough, that means I probably don't like it either. Yeah. So the only way to find out is to dive in. Well, I want to come back, back to something, but I, you're making me think of this, is, is, is when you're just starting out with a losing team, mm. there's nowhere to fall. Yeah, of course. What happens when you, you know, 30-0 and 0 mm. or, you know, six Ivy titles and mm-hmm. so on? Is that fear of failure different? Do, do you or your team members feel yeah. that fear of failure a bit more than you did back then? I think if we don't address it, honestly, um, up front, then yes. I think there's an enormous level of expectation that's now in this program, both internally and externally. Um, and that's, you know, we have two votes currently in the top 25 poll. You know? <laughs> so there's an enormous amount of expectation annually. And, you know, you just want to be at a place where you're making an impact and you're leaving a legacy. Mm-hmm. Um, and no one really remembers the mediocre Right. Yeah. And so um, you remember the people that, that went for it and failed. and You remember the people that went for it and made it. Yeah. Um, and so we're any team coached by me is going to go for it yeah. and hopefully be remembered for the right reason. Well, I, I um, again, back to your, your youth when you started, mm. uh, by definition, you learned what you now know about leadership on the job. And I have to say, yeah. having listened to you many times now, uh, uh, you know a lot about leadership. Mm. I mean, the, the, the wisdom is is evidently the kind of thing that people yearn for and want to hear about. 
Were there learning, were there specific learning moments mm-hmm. when you were in your early years of coaching here at Princeton uh, where you picked something up? I mean, you, you talk about, let me throw one at you in yeah. particular. You talk about how important it is to to focus on the individual uh, yeah. team member. That's a good point, yeah. Did you learn that through a particular moment or, or how did you come to that? I think, honestly, that when you're, I'm way above average at comp- as a competitor, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm, which is both good and bad, right? I've always <laughs> been very competitive. And so partly, and I know the sum of the parts is, you know, you're always better when you add them together, right? And so um, I liken it to you're only as strong as your weakest link, but you have to be, you want to coach a team where everybody feels like they're not willing to be the weak link. And so you can only really focus too much on the whole, you, the parts get lost. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've always just understood that what winning is is getting each part mm-hmm. to do a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was been as a comp- as a teammate when I was a comp- competitor myself. And then I've carried that on. Um, and so I really do. I coach 14 individuals. Um, and then on game day, we play together. Mm-hmm. And what else do you think is the secret sauce? I think one of the things, especially in our industry, is it's an incredibly competitive industry, much like uh, many of these highly successful industries. And so you, it can make you crazy and it can fatigue you, mm-hmm. right? If you're if, if you're judging by if you're being judged and, and rewarded and by the external vision of mm-hmm. yourself or being or, or taking those few realities, um, it can make you crazy and it can mm-hmm. also fatigue you. And I just um, I've just really stayed focused on my job is to bring this particular group further than they would have gone without me, yeah. really. Um, and so I, th- I think I've, I've learned that because so many of the, my peers in this industry are not as happy. You know, they're waiting to win the lottery. Yeah. If I won the lottery, I would still be coaching, you know. Um, and so I, I think it's just understanding that, you know, you part of my happiness on my team is because their leader is quite happy to be, um, to be their leader. You said um, it's important to coach less and teach more, mm-hmm. or, or maybe you phrased it slightly differently. Yes. Yep. The, the game is overcoached and undertaught. What, yeah. what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I, I always say that we approach our team with that if they're not doing it, it's because they, they haven't, we haven't taught it. Um, and that's that don't assume because you told them that they understand. Um, and so we constantly are showing through film, talking through drill work, um, talking through direct feedback, um, any sort of in any part of the game or any part of the intangible, being a teammate um, that we're asking for. So I always point inward, and if mm-hmm. you point inward as a leader, your group is going to point inward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if we're not playing well, it's I haven't prepared them well. Mm-hmm. Um, if we haven't, uh, if we're turning the ball over too much, I haven't valued it enough. Um, and so I think if if as a leader, I always point inward, and they know that that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm taking the bullet, um, and I will I'll always try to be better. And I think therefore I have a group of kids that are or a group of players that they're always pointing inward. What more can I do for the organization? And uh, I I hate to keep throwing back some things you've previously said at you, but I was really struck by this as well. You said, hire to your holes Mm. and listen to criticism, I think. Again, Mm -hmm. paraphrasing. Yeah, absolutely. That's a hard thing for most people to do. It is. Yeah, that's a good pickup. Um, You know, when you think about, I said this, I spoke at a a large function for a bunch of college coaches, and I said exactly that, hire your holes. You know, Mm -hmm. everyone hires people they're comfortable with and that they know. Um, you know how tr- I know how you learn to trust somebody um, is is you meet them, right? Mm-hmm. And then trust is earned. And mm-hmm. so it doesn't mean that people you don't know can't be trusted. And so instead, I'm going to find people that are different than me. Because also on your team, you're going to have people that are different mm-hmm, than you. Mm-hmm. So no matter what your mean personality type, fear are you are you more geared towards fear or failure? Mm-hmm. Are you more excited by possibility? Mm-hmm. Well, I have differences on my staff and, and what drives them, just yeah. like I do on my team. Um, and so I'm very. 
you know, there's going to be a consistent character, selflessness, work ethic, intelligence that I'm going to require of all my staff people. Um, but that's where our similarities will both start and stop. Yeah. C- can you drill on that a little bit? Because I'm really struck by yeah. that, too, that that so many people are driven, perhaps somebody in this room, yeah. <laughs> not you, yeah, yeah. and it, it wouldn't be you, <laughs> Yeah, can be uh, is driven by fear of failure as much as by excitement over opportunity. opportunity. Yeah. How do you rebalance that in a, in a person? This isn't a therapy session. No, but, I know. No, but, it's what uh, I deal with. I mean, I've really learned it at Princeton. You know, I think there are so many of my players are, you know, if they miss, so they could go four for 10 and they think they've missed every shot, which is 40%, mm-hmm, 40% mm-hmm. in women's, in, in any basketball field goal shooter, you'd, you'd be in the top 10 nationally, mm-hmm. right? But a four for 10 to some looks like I hurt my team. I didn't make enough, right? Um, so it's something I deal with all the time. Mm-hmm. And so I have to both create a practice plan and and, and in terms of how you, what you emphasize and how you celebrate, I have to constantly put them in situations where they see that the opportunity is far greater mm-hmm. than the small step that a failure would cause. Um, so, yeah, it's something that that I fortunately, this is just dumb luck. I was born with not afraid of failure. You know, I think I was born like everybody else with insecurities um, and um, disappointment. If I don't reach high expectation, we all those are natural, right? Yeah. yeah. But in terms of what drives you, um, I just I want to. I got one. I got one chance at this life to go big, and I just want to go big. <laughs> That's a lovely thought. Do, <laughs> do you track? Presumably, you do keep track of uh, previous teammates who've moved on. Hmm. Does it stick with them? Yeah, I hope after. I always say, I hope after four years with me, you've grown roots to know where you came from, and um, and wings to fly. And so, some of my players, they're going to fly higher. Um, the more because they've spent enough time with me and to realize that opportunity awaits. Um, so, yeah, I take an enormous sense of responsibility that when they leave, um, their roots and their wings are equal. Their roots aren't, aren't stronger mm-hmm. than their wings. Um, and so I, I'm really clear with my players on that. Um, and that takes some direct conversations. It takes, you know, some podcasts. It takes reading. It takes any number of things that I can get each individual person to do. But it's one of the hardest things I do is mm-hmm. to help people understand. Because in sports, you fail in front of everybody else. Yeah, no kidding. You know, um, and you're on the front page. And I get plenty of people who have opinions about how I'm doing my job and how I could do it differently. Um, and I, every once in a while, I'll read one to the kids that I get. Mm-hmm. So they see that, like, this is what I this is what I deal with, too. Mm-hmm. And I just stay locked into what we're about, right? Mm-hmm. And so I'm just constantly educating. I think I'm educating, as I would say to my – I think my parents are quite surprised that I'm coaching basketball for a living. <laughs> um, but I always tell them I'm educating. Um, but my dry cleaning bill is a whole lot less than theirs ever was. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to go back to the Fortune 50. Yeah, it was now, amazing. I'm, I'm guessing you probably don't have reunions or sit around right. and share tips with, I know. with the Pope and so on yes. and so forth. But just by being on that list, presumably you and everybody else around you thinks about how leadership uh, transfers or doesn't yeah. transfer from one yeah. kind of enterprise to another, one field to another. Mm. Uh, I wonder, you know, what Courtney... The coach would say to a politician, for example, I mean, what tips do you have? What could you take yeah. from your experience uh, that yeah. a politician running for Congress or Senate exactly. should, should follow today? Yeah, I think just we're the, what makes our species so amazing is that we have both heart and soul, right? And the more each one of us is our best you, you know, is our best mm-hmm. ourselves, we, we can shine. And so many of our populations, um, whether it's through diversity inclusion or, or through any um, sort of geographical areas are just they're not able to be them or our own insecurities and things um and so i would tell everybody that our own journey is to become our best 
our best selves. Um, and then, of course, a life of meaning is, is um, as I said at the dinner for the 50 Greatest Leaders, I said life is about two things, who you are and who you help. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think if everybody thinks about who they are and who they help, um, the world is going to continue to be a, a great place for everybody. Do you think that women have different leadership styles than men? Let me phrase it differently. Do women bring different strengths and leadership to the table from the traditional leadership Mm -hmm. models that we've used in in the past? I'm thinking, for example, that Fortune wouldn't necessarily have had so many women on its list. Yeah, uh, I wonder if that's yeah. I wonder if that's access and opportunity that we're now given, or um, at least from the women and and how I coach and the women that I've coached is um, it's a major generalization. But but women seem to make um, make sense and progress through cooperation. Um, and through wanting to be a, a shared journey. Um, and men, major generalization, like hierarchical understanding, right? So it's okay where they fall, but they just want to know where they fall. Yeah. Um, I think women, at least the women I coach, are uncomfortable if you're like, you're our best player. Yeah. Um, they'd rather have it be. And so I think there's an element of that, that our leadership is um, on our teams over my 12 years have been the people that can bring the whole the furthest mm-hmm. and less about they themselves are the best. Yeah. Um, so there's probably some differences there. I've, I've only coached women. Actually, I coached, I did coach high school boys when I was in college. I coached a boys varsity tennis team. Interesting. Um, and so now it was an individual sport. Um, so it was very different. But again, I think it likens back to is that um, who you are as a leader and what's important to you um, is, is going to mean you're going to make you more successful. That brings me to a question that I did really want to ask. Why don't we see women t- uh, coaching the NBA? Will we soon, do you think? I do. Yeah, I do. I think we will. Absolutely. I think it um, It just wasn't a thing that people thought was, um, it wasn't in people's brain space. I don't think it was something, there's probably an area of it where people have asked me what I want to coach um, in the NCA men, what I want to coach pro, and it's not right now, maybe. Um, and so, but it just wasn't something that was even really talked about. And now I think it's becoming, I, I don't think it's far until there's a woman on every staff in the NBA. And then ultimately how they become head coaches is one needs a chance. And then two need to do it. Yeah. And then three need to like it, you know. Um, and so, yeah, I think it's going to happen soon. Um, and it will be fun to see what that what that can turn into both um, for both the athletes themselves and for other coaches. Do you think it would be a different uh, thing altogether coaching a team of men? I think you'd have to find out what makes each of them tick. That's really important. Gender That's gender neutral um, in terms of that. And so um, what makes the best player on your team, whether it's a guy or a girl, and what makes the sixth best player on your team, guy or girl, you got to find that quickly. Um, and so I don't think it's as much um, of a gender fit there. I think the other side of it is that um, college coaching or pro coaching, it's an enormous investment of time. It's a very comprehensive job, um, as as Katie Kirk now knows, right? It's (laughs) it's an enormous time commitment. And so there's only, you have to be in these families where you can have some help, Mm -hmm. right? Because you're just, you know, on... I'm, I haven't spent a Thanksgiving at home since I've been a Princeton coach. It just mm-hmm. doesn't happen. You're either recruiting or you're, or you're coaching. or um, And so it's part of it is accessibility and part of it is desire. Um, and at some point, you need to have kind of the cultural shift also before the individual shift can happen. I have to ask you, this is a long question, but I hope we can touch on it yeah, quickly. Of course. Uh, the first podcast episode I did was with Nancy Weiss Malkiel. Who, oh, wow. Yeah. She wrote a book called To Keep the Damn Women Out, and, and she, she um, described something that I'm going to call the, the, the Malkiel conundrum. She says that when the undergraduates were, were admitted to Princeton in, in, um, in 1969, um, there was a, 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 ever, a, a precipitously growing trajectory of women taking on top leadership roles mm-hmm. inside the, in the, the college institutions, be it the Prince or heads of eating clubs or you know all of the above. That continued up to the 90s, and had had it continued, she said, to this day, there would be an equal distribution of men and women undergraduates in the top leadership 
posts, but what happened instead was somewhere around 2000, women started to bail out yeah. of leadership. Have you witnessed, this is immediately after right. you left college exactly. yourself, have you witnessed this reluctance to take the reins of leadership on the part of women coming after you? You know, no. I'm, that's because I think of only, I have a very small sample size. So the sample size I have is my athletes. And I always say if I wasn't with them as often as I am, I don't know if they'd be as as excited about opportunity or as willing to take risk or as as committed to being a good community member on our campus or teammate. So I don't know, but I have asked that myself that very question because I make sure that my 14, if they have any inclination that why just be in the eating club, be an officer, right? Why just be in your class, be someone who speaks up. Um, but that's someone in their, someone they trust telling them and mm -hmm. showing them. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think it's, I think the world works through mentorship, especially mm -hmm. women. Um, and I think our, our women have each other and me that are, are, are really careful mentors so that they become part of the solution. Thank you very much. That's uh, my pleasure. Thanks for including me. It's a oh, really it was, cool thing to pay attention to. Lovely. Thank you very much, Courtney Banghart. And I'd like to also thank our audio engineer, Dan Kearns, and our producer, Danielle Alio. They make us look good and sound good. <laughs> they do. And thanks to the audience, too. Uh, we'll be back again quite soon with more insights and reflections from the change-making women of Princeton University. This podcast is a production of the Princeton University Office of Communications with assistance from Instructional Support Services and the Office of Information Technology. The opinions expressed herein represent the views of the individuals involved, not those of the university. Princeton podcasts are available on major distribution channels, including Spotify and the Apple and Google podcast apps. If you have suggestions for future episodes or topics, please send them to podcasts at princeton.edu.